Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The time in Kiev is 3.07 a.m. on the 25th of March, 2022, day 90, 9-0 of the Russian invasion. And Kiev still stands. This is the seventh and probably my last for a bit special episode on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. After this, I'll be moving on to a few regular episodes, but I'll circle back to it. But in today's episode, we're going to discuss the crisis in the Donbass right now, because things are actually very fluid and very interesting and very dangerous for Ukraine, but also what could happen next long term. So welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I am your host, Eric Fogg, and we're going to start, as usual, with the low-level tactical situation on the ground of what's going on. And it's actually gotten really, really interesting since the last time we talked. Because the last time we talked, we had two episodes already where the Russian invasion was focused on the east, and it was quite static. And the only real motion had been really Ukrainian counterattacks, mostly towards Kursan, although that stopped, and tore out of Kharkiv, and since then that stopped. And I've actually gotten really, really, really deep into open source intelligence for this one, and so I've got very fresh updates with some insight as of basically right now. I actually want to make a plug for a summarizer of open source intelligence, Jomini of the West, who's been using stuff everywhere from ISW to just announcements from Russia and from Ukraine, trying to show what's been going on without giving away anything kind of pertinent to the Ukrainian disposition. But yeah, let's get into what's going on. So the Ukrainians did successfully push the Russians largely back from Kharkiv. So Kharkiv is the north right now. It's the second biggest city in Ukraine and the northernmost part of the Russian invasion at this point. The Russians wanted to keep pressure on Kharkiv to prevent the Ukrainians from being able to outflank the Russians' northern push southward to encircle the troops around Donbass. And the Ukrainians had started counterattacking because the Russians hadn't supported it all that well. And the Russians have been counter-counterattacking. These are called spoiling attacks in order to keep the Ukrainians from being able to sort of move at will there. So the Ukrainians have mostly pushed the Russians back from Kharkiv. The Russians can shell North Kharkiv at this point, and they're continuing to do so really just to be pains in the butt in order to keep Ukrainian troops pinned down there. They're doing actually a decent job right now of keeping a bunch of Ukrainian troops in that area from being able to conduct serious maneuver warfare. They're also trying to protect Belograd, which is 
sort of a main staging area in the biggest town that Russia has near the front line, which had been hit from a few things sort of back in the day before the Russian withdrawal. A few things had mysteriously blown up in Belgrade, uh, and it was probably the Ukrainians. So right now, the Ukrainians have a lot of troops around Kharkiv. What they're hoping to do is actually cross east over the Seversky Donetsk River, which is probably the most important geographical element in this entire war right now. Because it's a very flat area otherwise, and so you have a lot of urban stuff, and you have this river, which is hard to cross. And the Ukrainians actually managed to set up two crossings across it, one of which got pushed back and destroyed. The other one is there, but they haven't been able to break through. But if the Ukrainians can break through to the east, they threaten the entire northern, from the Ukrainians' perspective, northern axis of the Russian advance into the Donbass. Because... They run their ground lines of communication and their supplies to Izium through there. Izium, so if we move a little southeast from there, Izium has a huge buildup of Russian troops. And it was the initial breakout that the Russians had towards trying to encircle the Ukrainian defenders of the Donbass. It's actually kind of far. Had they really broken through, they'd have been able to catch everyone at once. But it sort of stalled out. Ukrainian defenders have been doing a good job pinning them down. So Izium has stalled out, but it still has a lot of troops because they want to prevent the Ukrainians from counterattacking and they want to be able to build up for another assault if they can. If we look at this map again from this fella, Jomini of the West, awesome, awesome map. It actually gets like quite frightening when you look at it because you see just how many BTGs, battalion tactical groups, the Russians have in the area. And as much as Ukraine has more total troops... Many, many, many of them are reservists or National Guard, and they're not organized into a serious fighting force. I think at a high level, before I move on from Izium, it's worth noting, like, the Russians seem to be performing like a real army all of a sudden. And there's a lot of reasons for this. A couple of them are, one, we talked about this two episodes ago. The Russians are close to their supply lines, and they're close to their own anti-air stuff. They're not deep in Ukrainian territory, so they're well defended. Their air defenses mean that their planes and their jets and their helicopters can make sorties and do close air support for their troops. This is like more conventional warfare, World War II style. And the Russians have a huge advantage in uh, material. They don't have a huge advantage in manpower. They have a disadvantage in manpower, but they have a huge advantage in material. They have far more planes is the biggest advantage. And so they are establishing some air superiority in that area. Russian planes are still getting shot down, but it's not a bloodbath the way it was before. They have more tanks in the area. They have a lot more artillery in the area. And so their general tactic has just been to constantly barrage everything, everything along that line with tons and tons and tons of shells. They just have tons of old artillery, and it turns out it's fairly reliable. And that old artillery it doesn't necessarily go far, and it's not accurate, but you can bring down a lot of shells. And so you can largely pin down troops. You can just make life miserable as you build up for an assault. And Russians have been doing that, and they've been spearheading their assaults with their most elite troops. So as much as most Russian troops aren't all that awesome, again, they've been surprisingly incompetent, but there's a reason people thought they were good. They have some skill. And so in these like very limited maneuvers and assaults, they send their best troops forward and they've been able to make a few key breakthroughs. The biggest one and the really scary one is in an area called Papanza, which if you've been really paying attention, you may have heard. It's just south of these two towns that 
have most of the Ukrainian defenders, Severodonetsk and, so I'm not going to try to say those again. I'm going to call them just the two big towns. Those two big towns, along with nearby, oh gosh, I don't even know, Bilovorivka, have a ton of Ukrainian troops holding them down. But the problem is there's only 15 miles between the breakthrough out of Papansa and the Russian front line west of uh, Rubizhna. And if that breakthrough from Papanza can really break out, the troops in those two big towns can be encircled and might have to do a mass surrender, right? Like being encircled really sucks. A big part of what would be really, really bad for them is if the Ukrainians couldn't break that encirclement and get supplies to those troops, they would eventually have to surrender en masse. And the Russians that have a huge advantage. One of the things to keep in mind here is that as far as we can tell, Ukrainian casualties have been high. Ukrainian losses of equipment have been high in this phase of the war, unlike the beginning. So both sides are taking huge casualties here. And so as long as it continues to be mostly a war of attrition, the Ukrainians will eventually win, just with a lot of damage and a lot of dead Ukrainians. But the Russians are trying to make this a maneuver warfare operation and trying to give themselves the advantage from, again, primarily their artillery, their advantage in just total material, and their advantage in air support so they can do combined arms operations. The Russians aren't great at combined arms operations, but they can do them in limited little pushes. And so if they can pin the Ukrainians down everywhere else and do these limited assaults at their discretion with combined arms, they can make movement. So even the Ukrainians are saying this is a very delicate time, a very dangerous time for the defense of the Donbass. The other tough thing that's going on for those two big cities is they're actually separated by the Seversky Donetsk River, and there are two big bridges between them. So I'm going to try it again. Severodonetsk is the one that's like most exposed on the eastern side of that river and being assaulted right now, like all the time by, I think, three BTGs, three of Russia's battalion tactical groups, at least. And other BTGs are putting pressure all over the place elsewhere. They only have one bridge getting them supplies because the other one's been destroyed. If the second is destroyed, they're largely cut off and they might have to like beat a hasty retreat, leaving behind a lot of stuff in order to save the actual people. And it's worth noting that, again, like you have Papanza just to the south. That's only like 15 miles away from being able to encircle this. You have a lot of Ukrainian troops there and you have a lot of pressure all around these two big towns to the north and south of Papanza to the southeast and northwest of these two big towns, pushing hard, hard, hard right now. The Russians are spending a lot of blood and they're spending a lot of material to do this because the Russians are looking for a big blow here. The thing that makes you think this might not be quite as bad as it looks is the Russians are kind of like desperate to have any kind of victory or good news. This is a big opportunity for them in a war that's otherwise totally not gone their way at all. And so they're willing to take a lot of risks and they're willing to, as much as their troops are like not just digging in and saying no thanks, they're willing to push really hard, lose a lot of men, lose a lot of material to make this happen because it could be a game changer if they're successful. This means that the Russians might be overextended. Now, it looks right now from just the number of BTGs hanging out that they're not. So that spearhead out of Papanza, that's two BTGs. But behind it are, let's look, one, two, three, four, five... 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 at least, which is a huge part of the Russian force. Massive. 
and outnumbers the Ukrainians that are there significantly. This is around Papanza. So the Russians can go backfill the areas that they're winning in Papanza if the Ukrainians aren't able to keep them off balance. So it is a really dangerous time, but it could be that the Russians are risk being overextended. Again, we talked about this last time. The Ukrainians win if they're able to slow this down and turn it into a war of attrition because the Russians will run out of even just people, much less steam and money and time before the Ukrainians do. So not everything's bad from the Ukrainian side or not everything's good from the Russian side. The Russians have twice tried to cross the Seversky Donetsk from the north, just to the west of those two big towns. What they're trying to do is support that pincer maneuver by crossing the river using pontoons because the bridges have all been destroyed. You might have heard about this. Two BTGs have been lost. Like two of their battalion tactical groups are just gone because the Ukrainians did a great job using intelligence from you-know-who to identify this was happening and set a trap. So twice the Russians have tried to cross, twice they've been trapped. It's worth noting that the Russians apparently have like limited pontooning ability at all. And so pontooning for them across this river may end up being something that's pretty limited. Like if we look at this map, we don't see them pushing hard. We don't see like kind of arrows coming through from the north and west there the way that we do from the south and east because to the south and east, they're not on the wrong side of the river. From the north and west, they are on the wrong side of the river. And so the Ukrainians are like somewhat safe from that direction. And there is a highway that runs there such that if they need to retreat, they have the ability to retreat along that highway without risk of their flank being blown open by the Russians because their pontooning has not been successful. So the Russians like losing two BTGs outright is pretty brutal. But again, they came into the war originally with 130 of them. So that's significantly more than 1% of their total force, and they've lost a bunch more in other places. But it does mean that the Russians still have a lot of troops in there, and Ukrainians do have to respect that river, because if they don't, the Russians might cross. So the other stuff that's been going on, of course, is that Mariupol fell after two and a half months of truly insane holding out. As I said, like this puts the Alamo to shame, and it bought a truly tremendous amount of time, two and a half months of pinning down Russian troops for the Ukrainians to be able to build defenses and get arms and get trained on those arms from the West. And so something like 12 BTGs were pinned down by this for quite a while. And those have moved to the front lines now that the Azovstal steel plant defenders have surrendered. But that time bought and just like the wearing down of those BTGs means they need to be refitted. It's all about time. And it makes it harder. The Russians weren't able to achieve a quick breakthrough in the Donbass because of that. And again, the slower things go, the better. And so like, if this breakout gets defeated or stalled, it does mean that the Russians like, they kind of got a new problem on their hands where their breakout becomes an exposed salient, at least to some extent. What you have in these like really wobbly lines is, again, something that like looks like a salient could become a cauldron, cauldron salient good, or salient okay, cauldron bad, like a cauldron is basically trapped. So salient could get could get counter-encircled. That maneuver warfare gets really, really interesting. Battle of the bulge kind of thing. In these weird positions, and like when the line isn't all that straight, you need to move fast both sides to try to take advantage of it or minimize the damage. But those 1900 troops that surrendered and our POWs now, there's a complication about it regarding Russian propaganda and how they're going to treat the Azov troops, and I'm not going to get into that because I don't think it's all that pertinent to the war directly, but that holding out is going to go down as one of the greatest stories of like kind of heroism and courage 
in military history, and the Ukrainians have a lot to be proud of there. So the other things worth noting are that of all the static parts of the line, it's not that the Russians haven't tried stuff. They've tried stuff repeatedly and frequently failed, which means their troops are getting ground down. And we don't know how many Russian troops are left. The UK currently believes that the Russians have straight up lost about a third of their combat capacity, which is a lot for any given war. And if that continues to get ground down at a significant rate, they're just like, they're going to run out of their ability to kind of keep advancing, right? At some point, you're just not able to do it anymore because you're so ground down. Why is Russian morale not playing as big a role here? Well, part of it is it probably is, frankly. But again, what you have here and now in the Donbass area that you didn't before is the ability to stick your best troops in front in a concentration with combined arms, with a lot of artillery support, and with like the generals, commanders close to the front lines, kind of like pushing people along, and then have the more conscript type troops fill in from the back, which you didn't before. You just had all these like super exposed people and like sending a lot of conscripts just like in tanks down highways, which is a super dumbing. And so the Russians have a little bit more morale right now, at least in the tip of the spear. And likely the Ukrainians are thinking about how they take advantage of that in places like Papanza, where you've got people feeling it in the back that might not do a great job defending the supply lines. But those supply lines are much, much shorter. And so it becomes a little easier to try to hang on. And so the Russians are grinding themselves down. But the thing is, like, you've got enough artillery. You can just unload with artillery for days and days and days, attempted assault. If it fails, rinse, lather, repeat to some extent. They're just going to run out of that at some point. And then finally, down in Kursan, the Russians seem to be planning to try to get a breakthrough in the south because they want to capture all of the Kursan Oblast, much like they want to capture the Donetsk and Luhansk Oblasts. And they want to be able to say, okay, we got it, let's call it. And that's probably their political objective at this point. Finish capturing Kursan Oblast, finish capturing Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast, create enough buffer that you've got some like ability to protect them and, and then try to negotiate. But we're going to talk about the problems of that in a second. Other details, Russia may be running out of drones, which is really interesting because it's a big part of their intelligence gathering. And the Ukrainians are trying really hard to shoot them all down. Nobody's selling drones to Russia right now because NATO won't, even though Turkey was before. And their ability to produce them domestically is very limited because sanctions mean that they're not getting the advanced electronics they need to do it. And it turns out the Russians aren't good at building the electronics, that is. And so they may run out of drones at some point, which for them would slow them down substantially and give the Ukrainians more of an intelligence advantage. As we can see, intelligence has been a massive comparative advantage for whoever has it, right? The Ukrainians knew that those pontoon bridges were coming down. They blew them up. The Ukrainians knew when, like, convoys of underprotected Russian military vehicles were driving by, they popped up with javelins and blew them up. And so the war, I think, is actually going to get hotter. The thing about this maneuver warfare stuff is everyone's willing to, like, take more risks. They're not as, and people can't be as dug in. So they're more exposed, more armament flying around, more people dying. So this is going to get really bloody really fast as the battle for that, like, eastern salient in the Donbass really heats up. It's unclear to me if the Ukrainians would, like, retreat to a more defensible line, which does exist, between two towns called and Kramatorsk. They could defend from there, but it would mean largely giving up. Actually, they could defend further ahead than that, but it would mean largely giving up the Donbass that they're trying to defend. So that's kind of the ground situation. And so we might be thinking like, kind of, how does this end? We talked about when does this end before, and that's not really clear. And we talked a little bit of how it's going to end, but I want to get into greater detail about this because I think the key thing to understand here at this point is that the Ukrainians now believe that they can win. 
Now, it is the case if the Russians do surround those two big towns and do eliminate the Ukrainian troops or do make a lot of progress, the Russians will start thinking maybe they can win and the Ukrainians will start thinking, oh, snap, this might be a problem. And so what the Ukrainians need to do is slow the Russians down and get the breakthroughs to kind of stall and it become a static war of attrition again. Because the thing is, in a static war of attrition, at some point, the aggressor runs out of steam. And this usually takes longer than people predict. Like if you think of World War I, everyone thought like, uh, like people will be home by Christmas kind of thing. It's kind of amazing how long like people are willing to stick out something that's not working because withdrawing is hard. And so this is kind of the bind is that the Ukrainians believe that they can win. They believe that they can exhaust the Russians, make them wear out and kind of wait out Putin. What's interesting about Putin right now is that he seems very, very, very sick. Like, there's a lot of indications that the guy has blood cancer, that he's spending a lot of time going to medical facilities, he's leaving meetings to get medical treatment, and he is, let's just say, probably dying really fast. Now, has he been poisoned? Probably not. But it turns out, it's possible that he got a terminal diagnosis, and that is why he launched the war now. We'll find out in a few years, I'm sure. But the guy does seem terminal, and there's kind of like the UK intelligence services are publishing that... There are people in the Russian government that seem to think they're not going to off Putin, but they seem to think like he's going to be gone by 2023, which is only seven months away. He's going to be gone by 2023. And then like the new guy can come in and say, okay, this is a bad idea. Let's make a deal. And that's, I think right now, like the problem is like Russia doesn't have kind of a unified idea of what to do. Cause I think a lot of people are trying to wait out Putin and say, look, just blame him. It was all him. Kind of like Germany. We're friends with them now, even though there was Hitler. Cause they're like, oh yeah, Hitler bad. I think you have a lot of people in Russia that are trying to think, okay, Putin bad. Can we be friends again? So what that means is that like the next six months will be really pivotal or so because we talked about like early May might be this really critical time and it's kind of come and passed and Putin decided not to escalate and he also decided not to declare victory, he just decided to keep going. And we've all been in those situations where we have some cost fallacy and we just have to like keep it up because we're not willing to just like say die and give up and go home. And Putin's not willing to do that. But the Ukrainians have been changing their tune, aren't ready to like have a ceasefire. They want to kick the Russians out. They want to get the Donbass back. They think they might even be able to get Crimea back, or at least that's what they're saying. And it's notable, even if they don't believe that, they weren't saying it before, and they're saying it now. And the Ukrainians, unlike the Russians, are full of morale, manpower, and money. And so the Russians want to, like, strike a blow, and, like, they want to do the Blitzkrieg and get everything, and, like, as their warriors have reduced and reduced and reduced, they want to, like, pick up territory and then keep it. And so they have people in the South and in the East going through and trying to, like, Russianize this area. But you have a lot of people that are like, yeah, they're kind of going along with it right now, but they're not happy in a way that they might have been had it been more of a fait accompli. Like, these are more Russian-speaking areas, but, like, people are pissed. And the Russians are along this front line. They're just leveling, absolutely leveling the towns that they're fighting. They're dropping incendiary munitions, which means like whole areas are just like catching fire. They're blowing up civilians left and right. They don't care. Or even if they did, they're out of precision munitions. So they just have to rely on tube artillery and relying on tube artillery means a lot of civilians are dying, which means they get mad. So they don't want to be with Russia, which means that like the Russians aren't likely to be able to create like a peaceful occupied zone, which means if you think about it, like, the Ukrainians are probably thinking, well, look, we're going to, like, wait until Russia wants to pull back, and then we're either going to insist that they go away and give us everything back, or we're going to push them out. Because 
If you think about it from the perspective of the Russians, you want to capture this area and then say, okay, let's make a deal. But the problem is, as soon as you say, let's make a deal to end this war, the Ukrainians are going to smell blood in the water. They're going to go, ah, now you're tired. You've got a problem. You can't keep this going much longer. So now we press our advantage because the Ukrainians' advantage grows with time. Had the Russians struck quickly right, and made progress quickly, they might have shocked the Ukrainians into giving up. They might have shocked the West into giving up. But... At this point, the Ukrainians think they can win and the West thinks they can win. And so what that means is the West is just pouring more and more and more and more money into Ukraine. Ukraine just got $40 billion promised from the United States. And not all of this is military aid. Some it's financial aid. Probably half of it is financial aid. And the G7 promised another $38 billion. The West might even think about like somehow pressuring the Russian Navy to stop blockading Odessa so that grain can get out because it's just too much of a food crisis globally. And the Ukrainians also have, according to the president, 700,000 soldiers fighting for them right now that have like actually been trained and armed, which is more than three times what the Russians put in in the first place. And so the Ukrainians will definitely win a war of attrition and they're mad, right? So they're just going to keep at it. So at this point, even if the Russians can inflict outsized casualties on Ukraine, which they don't seem to be able to do anyway, the Russians can just run out of people before the Ukrainians do. And the Ukrainians aren't going to run out of money, whereas the Russians might. And so Russia is, on one hand, having trouble manufacturing new weapons because it's not good at building complex electronics and they're not getting them because of sanctions. Sanctions have also meant that so many global companies have withdrawn. A Yale study believes that about 45% of its GDP was made up from sales and operations from the companies that had left Russia. And this doesn't, I think, mean that 45% of their GDP is gone, but it means there's a lot gone. And so there's a big economic slowdown generally, a lack of ability to manufacture advanced weapons. Russians fleeing the country, 4 million of them, and these generally are your like smartest kind of tech types. And so you're losing the potential income from them. And this isn't even talking about the long-term problems. So this is the short-term problems. And also the United States just announced that they're no longer going to let the Russian government pay their debts through American banks, which means that the Russians are going to default probably next month. Now, I remember scratching my head at some point saying, why was there this carve out? This is a couple episodes ago. Why were Americans letting Russians use American banks to pay their debts? It turns out that the reason was because it would have sent the bond market into a crisis because you have all these bondholders, many of which are American banks and such, that would have gotten screwed. And so this was like always a temporary thing and allowed bondholders to like sell off their assets to anyone who wanted to buy them on the cheap in order to get rid of the toxic assets. Now that they've done that, the Americans are going to stop the Russians from using American banks as of the 25th, which in Ukraine is today. And what that means is the Russians will default. And if the Russians default, all of a sudden their money situation becomes much more egregious. And there's, again, just more and more pressure to end the war because things keep getting worse and worse. The oil and gas embargoes seem to be running into lots of trouble. And so who knows like how much that's going to happen. But it's not as much of Russia's GDP as you might think. And while the Russians have to be selling their oil and gas at discounted prices because the West won't buy them, it's also the case that prices rose because of the war. And so the Russians are like kind of doing okay on that. So unless like there's kind of a global blockade of them, which would drive prices up even more, which people probably don't want to do, the Russians will keep being able to sell oil and gas, but they're going to have money problems in a lot of other ways. So 
This means the Ukrainians have this long-term advantage, and they know they have a long-term advantage. They just have to not lose. And when the Russians get fed up with it, the Ukrainians are probably going to counterattack. They've already got partisans in the back lines who are making trouble. The Ukrainians are becoming well-funded, well-armed, and quite veteran, and they're angry. So the Ukrainians are going to counterattack and start pushing Russia out. Now, tactically, there's a question of whether the Russians will be able to defend Crimea because it's really hard to get to by land. Maybe. And they might even be willing to because they might see it as their home turf. But if they're going to vacate the rest of Ukraine, they'd have to remove most of their troops to Crimea to defend it, which is hard to do for a lot of reasons because it's very hard to get stuff to Crimea. So it makes me think that I don't really see this ending without the Ukrainians taking back just about everything, unless maybe Crimea, unless Russia does something very stupid, such as drop a nuke. So this makes me think that like the Ukrainians are in a position to win this long term. The warble to that is if the Russians do actually get quite the breakthrough in Papanza, they might be able to go reestablish like a new line much deeper into the Donbass. But even then, the only way the Russians really make put the Ukrainians in a situation where they don't have a long term or at least a medium term military advantage is if they're able to surround and destroy the Ukrainian troops in those two big towns. If they fail to do that, if those Ukrainians are able to retreat, especially with their material, or hold off this breakthrough, the Russians are in a lot of trouble because, again, they're really grinding themselves down to be able to do this. So it's not that they've totally lost operational capacity. And again, they have advantages in material and air support, but they're like at risk of running out of some of the key stuff that they need to succeed. And it's really hard to go deep other than for them in really, really slow, careful ways because they're not really good at maintaining long supply lines and their troops are prone to surrender or retreat, which means even if they are making progress, this like small area in the central Donbass, but like the eastern part of the theater, like it's a big deal if that gets lost, but the Russians aren't that much deeper at that point. Again, if the Ukrainians don't get totally destroyed by this maneuver, which it looks like it's slowing down at least a little bit, and the Ukrainians are probably at least thinking about what retreat looks like. So if the Ukrainians in the east don't get destroyed by this maneuver, you now have like a less fluid defensive line that they can set up either at Bakhmut and Solodar, or as we mentioned in Solovyansk and Kramatorsk. Sorry to all Ukrainians listening to this for butchering the towns of your fine country. And so, yeah, there's a chance that the Russians like make enough of a dense, the wrong word, but beat up enough of the Ukrainian army. They start feeling like they don't have a medium term advantage anymore. But unless if the Russians fail to do that, the advantage returns to Ukraine and things just keep getting worse for Russia. So then what happens to Russia? Well, Russia will default, which is going to play hell on its banking system and its ability for its government to keep funding it. The good news for Russia is that gas and oil, while they're not a huge part of the GDP, they are a huge part of the Russian revenues. But if Russia's debt is about $300 billion, which the ruble is looking pretty strong right now, but if the ruble collapses and they're not able to pay the debt and they're defaulting, they're not going to be able to get access to debt. And it's a country that runs a deficit, which means like they have to keep their government functioning, like they have to fund it somehow. If they can't get access to debt, it gets very, very complicated to continue a war. Is basically the long way of putting it is if they default, the ruble plunges, the financial sector is in a crisis, the government has trouble getting its hands on money. It's very hard to run a war without money. Not impossible, as we saw in World War I and World War II, but it gets very hard to do it without a total war posture. So 
it gets really hard for them really fast, which is possibly why they're pushing so hard right now, which is possibly why it looks like the Russians are really scary right now, but they might be overextending because they're running out of time. And so what the consensus seems to be is that at some point, Russia is no longer run by Putin, and they're going to end the war and try to get a deal. And they'll probably try to keep Crimea, but it's not clear how well that's going to go. It's just too, too many variables. When will sanctions get lifted? Because they'll need to. They're not hurting the West nearly as much as they are Russia. It's the war that's hurting the West. Like food prices are expensive, gas, oil are expensive. So the West wants the war to, the end, the war to end, but like they can still have these sanctions. They can still keep McDonald's and such out of Russia. And what that means is there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Russians to sign a peace treaty with Ukraine that Ukraine likes because that's what's going to cause the sanctions to get lifted. That's the leverage. You don't want to keep sanctions on forever. You want to use them as a tool in order to get what you want. What you want is peace that Ukraine's happy with. And so I think that's likely to happen because like the financial pressure that comes with the long-term sanctions and the debt default are just going to be too much to bear long-term, and the post-Putin person is going to need to do something about that. Especially because long-term, Europe's going to get off of Russian hydrocarbons. This is possibly very good for developing more green energy and tighter cooperation between the EU and the US, which would just be like, all that stuff would be very good generally. But Russia's going to need to reintegrate itself or else it's kind of toast. Again, its biggest exports are all hydrocarbons. Finally, the military situation. So Finland and Sweden, they applied to join NATO it's looking a little dodgy because of Turkey, but I think that'll probably get sorted out. Like, Turkey has an excuse for why this isn't happening. I don't think Turkey wants to be kicked out of NATO. They may be told, hey, if we need to choose between you and Finland and Sweden, we'll take Finland and Sweden. And as much as Turkey wants to be a punk in NATO, I don't think they want to leave. I don't think that that ends well for them. And then Russia's military is going to be garbage for a very, very long time. It was already more garbage than we thought, but we also thought that it was like a real risk to Europe as a whole. But like they can't even take over 20% of Ukraine. So it's pretty garbage. And they're losing their best equipment and people fairly quickly. It's really hard to build that stuff back up, especially if your economy starts going the wrong way. And just that sense of invincibility is gone. Now that'll affect recruitment and it'll affect their ability to use their military. And if they do use their military, and everyone knows this, people will be like, well, we can resist this. And so it's going to be a very, very long time that Russia becomes like largely irrelevant because they'll be economically poor. Their smartest people are leaving. People are getting off of their hydrocarbons. They're going to be surrounded militarily by an enemy alliance, and their military has been beat to hell. Now, you might think that that very, very long time is inevitable, but we also have to remember that like Germany lost a war in 1919, and 20 years later in 1939, they kicked off a world war and took over all of Europe temporarily. So this stuff can turn around, but I think it's going to be really hard for the Russians to make that turnaround occur in the same way, basically because of the nature of the global. It's a different beast now. And it's not as easy to just like snap your fingers and industrialize in the same way because there's just like so much global competition for industrial commodities. So like you can't just be like, we're going to build steel plants now and stuff like that. So I think Russia becomes pretty irrelevant long term, which isn't the worst thing in my personal opinion, which you shouldn't listen to too much because my job's not to do the thinking for you. We'll be back next time. I've got a few ideas, but we've got some non-Ukraine material coming up soon. Until then, Slava Ukraini. Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric signing off. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.